But you have to explain first who is good and who is evil. Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. I'm your host, Ian McCourt. Sir Alex Ferguson, Sir Bobby Charlton, Usain Bolt, Justin Timberlake, Fabian Gorsler, Megan Fox, Enrique Iglesias, The Game, Floyd Mayweather, Fabian Gorsler, Tom York, Orlando Bloom, Mick Hucknall, Ulrika Johnson, Fabian Gorsler. Your boys took a hell of a beating in a hell of a game that was the crown jewel in an action-packed weekend of football fun. Here to talk about all of that and more is Paddy Higgs. Morning. Nico Durbin. Hi. And of course, Fabian Gorsler. Hey, hey. Sorry to have to do this, folks, but we have to start off today on a negative note. After this week's podcast, there will be no more One Football Podcast for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, you were nervous there for a second. I, I could see it in your eyes, Paddy. Yeah, One Football in its entirety is upping sticks to the Baltic Sea for a few days of fun and sun. But rest assured, we will be back the week after to bring you plenty of shallow opinions and jokes that are as bad as the average Nicolas Cage movie. Not this again. Oh, yeah. Well, there was a bit of controversy over it. Yeah, in the, everybody disagreed with you. It wasn't that controversial. No, not not, not incredibly, <laughs> not, not incredibly controversial. Um, with that all out of the way, um, there's so much to talk about when it comes to the Manchester derby. It's hard to know where to start with it all. One thing I would like to say is that often these games get hyped to within an inch of their lives and rarely live up to it. But I thought this game was was fascinating. It was really good. Yeah, it it was definitely it definitely lived up to the hype. Um, I think I I'm obviously not a neutral. I'm a United fan, but as even as a United fan, I was on the edge of my seat the entire game, and I can't remember the last time that was the case watching a United game. We watched this together, Nico. We did, yeah. I agree. Um, it was a great match. It was was really nice to watch. Um, you you don't often have that. Um, if Pep, I mean, I I know Pep from the Bundesliga, and when he played Dortmund, for example, people got excited beforehand. But at the end of the day, it was often not such a match. Yeah, you know, um, this one was relatively open. Although Man City was the better side, from my opinion, you know. But United always, you know, you, you had the, the feeling that United could score a goal uh, still. I mean, it was a game of two halves, which, you know, obviously there were two halves. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, they were, the two halves were so different. The first 40 minutes, City completely dominated. I mean, United had, you know, none of the ball, no chances. Um, it was just all City. And then the second half, United came into the game a little bit more. And it became very open, as you said, and it was kind of end to end. And it was... It was the best of English football, I feel like. you know, it, it wasn't too tactical, and sometimes with Pep, that can be the case. Um, or not even too tactical. It just wasn't too possession-based. It was kind of you know back and forth, back and forth, and that's what the fans really like. Even that first goal is probably the most un-Pep-like yeah. goal I've seen from a Guardiola-managed te team ever, almost. You know, it was direct. It was to the to the head of the striker. Um, you know, he glanced it down, and it was you know it was perfect. You know, direct football, nothing that you would expect um, from the first Guardiola goal in a, in the Manchester derby. I think one or two things that are interesting about that is that they they play possession. City are playing possession football in the way that Barcelona did, but not in that sort of sideways possession Correct. that Barcelona yeah. did. It's it's more of a sort of, not, I don't want to say long ball, but it's almost straighter. Not 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 left and right, just a bit more, a little bit more direct about it. The second thing that interests me is how well City have 
already adopted to what is a very challenging system that Guardiola wants from his side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you probably couldn't say that that Bayern Munich ever played in that tiki-taka um, style that, that Guardiola's Barcelona did. Um, and that's the thing about that Guardiola that we're going to find out exactly how sort of durable he is tactically. Um, he enjoyed uh, using his wingers at, at Bayern, um, Ribéry and Robin, when they were fit in particular. And I think we're going to see a little bit of that with, with Sterling and, and possibly De Bruyne out wide or, or other players like Silva as well. Fab, the, one of the major talking points was Mourinho's team selection. That's where it started to go wrong for United, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, the thing about the, the goals that City scored were there were two individual mistakes, I feel like, by Blint um, and uh, Bailly. Um, so, you know, everyone agrees that Mkhitaryan and Lingard had shocking matches. Um, Lingard was anonymous. I didn't even know he was playing until he got subbed off at halftime. Um but who's to say that it would have been different if Martial and Mata had played from the start? You know, maybe Blint and Bailly wouldn't have been pressured as much and wouldn't have experienced as much constant pressure. But you can't really say that changing two players would have changed the fact that Bailly and Blint made such huge mistakes. They could have still made those mistakes with those two players switched. And it's not also, it's not like uh, the two players that you mentioned, um, Martial and um, Mata, are completely different players to the ones that came off at halftime. You know, he, he chose the type of player for that for that game. It wasn't like um, when we saw Van Hal putting Fellaini in a, in a role that he shouldn't have been playing. These were two similar players, unfortunately, that just let him down on the day. Surely, sorry, surely you would have started with Rashford, though, given that United is a relatively pedestrian team. There's not a huge amount of speed in that in that squad. Yet Rashford can, as he's shown on numerous occasions, can can really tear into sides. Well, I mean, he, he picked Lingard and Mkhitaryan for their speed. So I think, you know, Rashford would have started over those two. If he wanted to go with a different kind of tactic for his wide men, then it would have been Mata and Martial. Martial comes to the ball a lot more. Rashford kind of runs onto it, has that pace. Um, but I think another thing that needs to be discussed is, you know, it obviously was the wrong decision to play those two players, but it also limited the rest of the game. When he took those two players off, he used two of his three substitutions. He had one substitution left for the last 45 minutes, which severely limits the manager's influence on the game. There's not much he can do. He has to, you know, he has to work with the players he has. And if something doesn't work, then he has to risk that final substitution. And Pogba, what did you make of him? I mean, it was a difficult game. I mean, you look at City's team and I think, in my opinion, they had the best squad last year. They obviously didn't win the league and they underperformed. But with the improvements to the manager and now the squad as well, I mean, you look at the midfield of Silva, De Bruyne and Fernandinho. I mean, it's just miles better than Pogba. As good as Pogba is, it's just as miles better than Pogba and Fellaini as a unit. And I think you saw the unit of City kind of trump United's unit. One thing I would say about that is that I thought Pogba, I don't like Pogba in that deep lying position. I like him much further up the field where he can take on players and, and attack defences. I don't, I think he lacks the discipline to play further back. You often saw that uh, Fellaini was left having to deal with Silva and De Bruyne by himself. I think Jamie Carragher was talking about him last night and sort of said he felt sorry for him. Yeah, I mean, you saw it, it improved. I mean, the second half improved when Herrera came on as well. You saw that Pogba was playing more advanced and that did create more chances for United in general because Herrera has that ability to, you know, 
switch play and and you know track back a lot more um he has more discipline i would say than pogba as you said yeah i've got an interesting um stat about mkhitaryan and lindgaard sure would you like to hear it let's hear it mkhitaryan lost the ball more than lindgaard actually touched it in the first <laughs> half uh yeah i believe that i mean mkhitaryan saw the ball a lot we played a lot over the right but you know as you said he was super ineffective lost the ball and lindgaard was he even playing like he didn't do anything talking about terrible debuts Claudio Bravo. Oh, eh? man. I mean, he he replaces Joe Hart for exactly that reason, because <laughs> he's better with the ball at his feet. And then he he plays the way he played. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into it too much, but like that horrible touch he took when, when he went studs up against Rooney should have been a penalty. He's lucky that wasn't a penalty and maybe even a red card. Um, but, you know, dropping the ball. I mean, that was to be expected, though. He's coming to a league that's a lot more physical than the Spanish league and a lot of foreign uh, goalkeepers struggle uh, with aerial duels, especially, but it was the ball at his feet. That was a major problem. I would say that Bravo's experienced enough to say that he should have taken that. I mean, it's, you say, yes, you've mentioned the Spanish league, but it, you know, he's, he's got a very long career played internationally against a lot of teams. Um, there's no way he should be dropping that high ball. I mean, no doubt. And it's also the com communication aspect as well. Um, I'm not sure how good his English is, but um, you know, you, it looked like I forgot who he ran I think into. It was Stones. Stones. Yes. Was it yeah. Stones? Yeah. Mm. Um, it was just a lack of communication, and it might not even be the language barrier. It could just be they haven't, you know, they haven't played together sure. that much, so they don't know. Stones doesn't know his keeper well. He doesn't know how he comes out or how he likes to gather the ball. So it, you know that adds into it as well. Pep said afterwards it was one of the greatest goalkeeper performances he'd ever <laughs> seen in his life. Yeah. I can't even say that with a straight face because it really wasn't that good. No. But he'll get better. Absolutely, he's a, he's a fine goalkeeper, um, and I think, uh, yeah, goalkeepers unfortunately have games. I mean, they're under pressure; they're in the spotlight all the time. It just happened to be in a, in a derby, but they they got three points, and it'll, it'll be forgotten soon enough. And, and Bravo will be a good goalkeeper for that club, right? And it was a penalty, wasn't it? That studs up challenge, definitely. I mean, he was studs up, two feet in. Even though he touches the ball, he's out of control of his body. His entire body is off the ground. It's a red card and a penalty. Okay, we should talked a lot about United and their problems we should heap some praise on City they were pretty good they were excellent I mean they have a far superior team but you can see that you know Pep as Paddy said is getting them to play the football that he wants them to play mm -hmm. and it's also like you know that possession based but kind of like a different kind of twang to it and um, it's kind of scary to see how good they were in that game so early in the season and how good was Kevin De Bruyne yeah. he was the best player on the pitch I, he's going to be the player, I, I've said this uh, ad nauseum over the last few days, but he's going to be the player that Pep builds the team around. Yeah. I, I can't get enough of him. Though he looks a bit like Tintin. <laughs> <laughs> he does. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing, Paddy. No, no. Are you saying that I look like Tintin as well? <laughs> you don't look like Tintin. No, no, no. Uh, I think that's quite a bit on the Manchester Derby, unless anybody else has anything to add. Nope. No, you're all shaking your heads. Let's should we move on to the Bundesliga? Let's then? move on. So the action this weekend wasn't just contained to the Manchester Derby. It was a cracking few days in the Bundesliga too. Hey Nico. Mm-hmm. Shall we start with what was arguably the you enjoyed your water there? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, should we start with what was arguably the biggest shock of the weekend in the battle of good versus evil? Leipzig came out on top. But you have to explain first who is good and who's evil. Well, this is an interesting conversation, <clears throat> this Leipzig-Dortmund uh, conversation. And maybe it's one we can get into a little bit because I feel like, I mean, I, I come from where, I come from a 
you know, a background where I don't, you know, don't have a huge amount of uh, knowledge about Leipzig or, you know, how evil they are meant to be in Germany. Yeah. But I don't really see the problem with them. Okay, so I'm trying to keep it as short as possible. Yeah. And not about Leipzig in particular, mm -hmm. just in general, in German football. Um, German football is all built on clubs and clubs per se are not run for uh, profit. So th th there's a conflict because all the clubs in the Bundesliga are run for profit, obviously, um, but they kind of have to do good business to, to be in the Bundesliga. Other teams who just make losses year over year um, they're relegated. They don't get a license to play in the Bundesliga again. So it's been a struggle for many traditional clubs and for many fans and so on to support their team over years and years. You know, teams get relegated, um, they move up again in the first league, and now there are teams such as Hoffenheim and Leipzig um, who move up um, a league every year. They start in this whatever sixth league, seventh league, and then they just go up, up, up. They take two years in the second league, and then they come to the first league and they finish in in the one digits. Um, I can see that that's frustrating. Now, what, what many people forget is that we also have Leverkusen and Wolfsburg in the Bundesliga. They're not liked either, um, but they're just um, part of the Bundesliga these days. You know, people don't like them, but people also don't hate them the way. They hate Hoffenheim um, or Leipzig, for example. I mean, there's huge companies pumping money into Bayern and Dortmund all the time, and so I don't see why. It, what? What? Maybe I should be a bit more specific. I, I feel a lot of fans take the moral high ground over this issue, and I feel like Leipzig are getting money from from Red Bull, obviously, yeah. but in the same way that Dortmund and and Bayern get huge amounts of sponsorship. But it's different. Leipzig is a just straightforward franchise um, club of Red Bull, such as, uh, um, I mean, it's called Rasenballsport Leipzig, but RB kind of, yeah, yeah, Red Bull Leipzig. Um, and they get players on loan and so on from other Red Bull clubs, um, Red Bull Salzburg, and you all know the other Red Bull clubs. So it's a franchise. It's just something so plastic, so artificial, um, rising up so quickly from nowhere that just makes people uncomfortable and makes people want to protect the football they know, the clubs that they know. And I mean, I think some of it is also the money that's being pumped in, but a big part is how the club is governed. Because as Nico said, you know, in Germany, they're clubs with members. Members decide, members are the fans. But Red Bull has come in and made it very, very difficult and very expensive to become a member of the club, therefore restricting the fans' voting and influence over how the club is run. And that's what a lot of outsiders don't like because it's kind of still all legal and, you know, still all playing by the rules, but it's a very shady way of getting around the rules and making sure that the company runs the club rather than the fat rather than the fans. Yeah, Fab's right. I mean, it's the, the 50 plus one rule. Um, traditionally, the, the fans should always own 51% of any club. Um, and there's a, a couple of clubs that have managed to circumvent that. Nick, I mentioned them before. Leverkusen, um, Bayer being a company based in Leverkusen, um, argued that they are fans of the club, so this, thus they could hold a majority stake. Um, you look at Bayern Munich, you, you mentioned before, they do have a lot of money pumped into them from Adidas, from Aldi, but it's still... 
51% owned by the fans. RB Leipzig have found ways around it, as Fab mentioned, and that's really stuck in the core of a lot of Bundesliga fans. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining it to me. Yep, you're welcome. And they deserve were they deserved winners at the weekend, do we think? Yeah. Yeah. I think Dortmund... Um, it's not going very well for Dortmund at the moment, is it? Well, okay, it's, it's two different conversations. First of all, I think Red Bull is... Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say Red Bull. It's Rasenballsport. But Leipzig is extraordinary uh, talented squad. Mm. Um, they have a great coach. Ralf Hasenhüttl uh, performed so well with Ingolstadt last season. Um, I'd be surprised if they um, would not end the season within the first... 10 of the league. Um, Dortmund, I, I was surprised that, that Tuchel picked um, Castro um, over, for example, Dembele. Um, he picked uh, Piszczek over, over Paslak. Now, I understand that because Paslak, you could tell that he's not experienced enough in some situations. Um, but the, the whole Dortmund squad looked rather slow. Um, only Schürrle and Götze maybe played up to um, their their skills, and everyone else was a bit uh, behind that. Um, second half, Red Bull, I'm saying it again, um, played really, really well, and it's no surprise that at the end, um, the assist coming from Burke, the the goal coming from Keita, um, two of Europe's most scouted talents, uh, I want to yeah. say. Yeah, what a thought, so. Um, 15 million euros a piece as a well. Piece. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, yeah. yeah. So Leipzig, Leipzig paid 50 million euros in, in transfers this season and didn't, didn't uh, make any, you know, they didn't sell any, any player for any money. Okay. Did you have anything you wanted to add about Dortmund? Yeah, I mean, uh, from, you know, there's a lot's been predicted for Weigl. Um, and I think, um, Hasenhutl, you mentioned before, is a, has got a really good reputation and uh, he definitely added a lot more clout to it with the way that he negated Weigl's influence. Um, I think he only had some, he didn't even have 80 touches yeah. um, for a player in that central, what we might call a quarterback position, to not have more of the ball. Um, just shows exactly where Leipzig's uh, focuses were and I think that really hamstrung um, Dorman, who still look like they're yet to settle with this new blood um, yeah. in this squad. And and Barter is just no Hummels. No, Barter yeah. had by far the most uh, touches, I think, yeah. on the Dortmund side. Yeah. But he's no Hummels. No, yet. absolutely not. Hey, speaking of plastic clubs, well, Hoffenheim had quite the uh, quite the comeback, didn't they? Did anybody yeah. see this? Yeah. They were four win four one down with twenty minutes to go. Yeah, and they came back. They came back. Well, there was a red card um, against Mainz for Busman, um, and that kind of changed the whole match. Um, then. Mark Uth came on. Mark Uth scored two goals. I don't know how many minutes after he was uh, brought in. Second goal was great shot from distance. And then you have the momentum. All of a sudden, it's just two goals. Two goals in a match that already saw six goals is not that. Yeah, it was good. Not that much. And then they just went for it and. Yeah. You shouldn't really be surprised with this from a Hoffenheim game, to be honest. They've been doing this for years. Even yeah. before Nagelsmann came along, it'd be quite often that the game would be nil-nil for 75 minutes and then would end up 3-3. It, it's more surprising for a Mainz game. Correct. Mainz Correct. being pff, one of the smallest clubs historically in, in, in the German Bundesliga currently. Um, and the way they're playing in the last years, it's just amazing they're doing such a great job and they're playing so consistently well over years so i was quite surprised that they gave it away in the end 
There was a nice quote from Nagelsmann afterwards. He said, things got emotional at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one way of putting it. Uh, the drama didn't stop there. There was Pyoyan Paolo, if my, <laughs> f- if my Finnish pronunciation is correct. Ruining Bobby Wood's day, the jerk. Huh. Huh? Yeah, but it was just it's just great to see Poyan Paolo. He has now four goals in two matches. Yeah. Guess how many shots on target he has? Four? Yeah, exactly. Get <laughs> in. He he played um twenty eight minutes this season or so. This is a strange one no, because he's been on loan at Dusseldorf in the second division for a couple of seasons now and really hasn't shown that much. And it's almost like he's come in, had a bit of a decent preseason, and they just say, oh, well, this is probably one of his last chances. Let's figure out if he can actually play at this level, this kid. Um, you'd probably almost want to quit while you're ahead. It's not going to get better than four goals in 28 minutes, <laughs> is it? It's what the Germans <laughs> call a Lupereiner hat-trick. A Lupereiner hat-trick. Am I right? Yeah. Oh, get in. I mean, you don't see it that often for coming from a joker, from somebody who was brought in. Can we get a definition of that, please? Lupenrein? Yeah. Jesus. It's <laughs> three goals in one half without anyone else scoring in between. Ah. Yeah, exactly. Is that right? That's right. Oh, my German lessons are coming along. There you are. You, you got that out of your German lessons? I got that out of my yeah. German lessons, yeah. Um, there was a nice piece on the Set Piece website about um, Pio Yampolo. And apparently before the game, the English physio, Stuart Rickards, told him, you need to score three today. Yeah. And he did. So fair play. <laughs> uh, should we have a final, final word on the Bundesliga about Schalke and Bayern Munich? Because I thought Schalke was one of the best performances of the weekend. Yeah, well, it's not worth much if you lose in the end. Have you seen the table recently? Mm, yeah. yeah. Okay. Schalke, there's only one team below Schalke and it's Werder Bremen. So yeah. you can oh. be proud of your uh, performances, but if you're not picking and, up points. Well, bo- yeah. Bodes well for the future as well, and I would say. It's, it's really, at the moment, everything uh, still can happen in the Bundesliga. You, you mentioned all the results this week. And then Frankfurt, um, they won against Schalke last week. This week, Frankfurt loses to Darmstadt. <clears throat> So you, you you don't really know yet what it's all all worth. I also think it's it's this is going to sound a bit weird. It's quite easy to impress against Bayern because if you're not getting smashed, if you're playing well and you're holding them for long parts of the game, then everyone goes, "Oh, well done!" You know, like well done. You've still bloody lost. You know, like <laughs> it's it, it's very easy for players to get up when they're playing against Bayern because there's very oh there's a bit less to lose. The pressure's off, right? And they did play quite well. Schalke are a good side, but um, yeah, I mean the, the results the same. I mean, I think they did more than just hold Bayern at bay, or you know, like not. They did more than not get correct, smashed. Correct. They at times they looked very, very solid defensively, and they really, really made Bayern work hard for the win, which is something you don't see often. Usually, you see Bayern go up one nil, two nil, and then they cruise. And sometimes they get a third or a fourth. Sometimes they don't. But they really had to grind out this two nil win against Schalke, which, you know, you're right. They're sitting very low on the table, but they have a bunch of new players, and if they keep playing like this, they'll quickly move up the table. I think. No doubt. Download One Football, the most comprehensive football app in the world. So we may be away on holiday next week, but we do have a special guest with us today to help soften the blow. It's Daniele Caporale. And this is his first time in the podcast. Yeah, my first time. So please be kind to him. We're always kind. We all always kind. Although we try to make him take off his shirt earlier, pretending it was a ritual. It's not really. A rite of passage. Rite of passage. A bit of hazing. Look, hazing never hurt anybody. Um... So Serie A this weekend, let's start with Roma and Sampdoria. Match yeah. of the weekend, maybe? Yeah, definitely. It definitely was a brilliant game. And that 
we have seen uh, all the difficulties of the Roma at the moment. In the first half, uh, I have to say that a really great Sampdoria faced uh, Roma in a very good way and they played very good football. And then uh, almost everything uh, happened during this game because uh, at the end of the first half, uh, a storm arrived on Stadio Olimpico. And the pause has been not as usual for uh, like 15 minutes, but 75 minutes. <laughs> so you, everybody here could understand uh, how could change uh, the mentality and the game uh, pose like that. And after the second half, uh, something happened. Uh, this something is uh, Francesco Totti. <laughs> oh. One in. of my favorite players of all time, Francesco Totti. Yeah, a very good player. Maybe something more. And... <laughs> 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 um, that he came in and with a great pass to Jaco for the equalizer and with the penalty at the last second, he brought the Roma to the victory. And so maybe the penalty was not so clear. Everybody is saying that at the moment in Italy, but I mean, it's not Totti fault. He made his work uh, as the best. Now we were talking off here, Daniela, and Roma are sitting third at the moment, I think, just two points behind Juventus. So, you know, in terms of how they've started the season points-wise, it's been quite solid. But there's been quite a bit of criticism for their performances. And as you mentioned, perhaps if that storm hadn't come over, um, they might not be where they are right now. So how did you see Roma um, for, for some of the game on, on you know against, against Samp? Um, I repeat, I saw Roma not so well in the first half, really. But I would say that really Sondaria played a good, First half. I don't know if all the faults are by Roma or by Spalletti because most of the fans and the experts in Italy are blaming Spalletti for some of these reasons. Uh, for example, he, okay, of course the fans want the the fans want uh, Totti in, in the, on the pitch, but of course he is for, almost forty. He cannot play every game all the all the minutes. But uh, in the game against Sampdoria was the big ta- the first big test for the three musketeers, as uh, I, I like to call them: uh, Perotti, El Sharawi, and uh, Salah. And Salah. Yeah. They started in the first seven minutes, but it's not enough very well. Uh, after that, uh, yeah, uh, everybody understood that something was missing, and in this case, it was Jacob because. He, in the end, uh, in Serie A, especially in very fast games, uh, very fighted games, uh, a big striker in front of the in front of everybody, just keeping the ball, uh, and let the let the team uh, come uh, in attack. Uh, it's too important in Serie A, and so probably Spalletti will spend this uh, week uh, just to understand how to use or for of all of them or just to put inside uh, Jaco and decide uh, who of those three will go on the bench speaking of strikers it was Iguain's first game for for Juventus yeah he, he did pretty well didn't he yeah I think that the discussion about his fitness is definitely closed because <laughs> he, it looked like he lost about five kilograms yeah yeah it's incredible uh, probably Juventus uh, about this uh, it's really the best uh, club in Italy because they 
okay, they are the best club on, on the pitch, uh, but also around the pitch, uh, all of them, all the people working in the society, all the people working around the team, for the team, they're very, the best experts uh, in Italy. And yeah, Higuain is in a perfect uh, fitness at the moment. He scored two goals. And he, at the, the moment... The second goal was a belter too. The second goal is an amazing volley kick uh, with a good Kedira assist. And at the moment, Iguain is setting a record because he scored one goal every 39 minutes. It's really something unbelievable. But not only Iguain, because also Kedira, as I told before, but not only the assist, but a very good game. Pjanic. Pjanic is demonstrating that to be a top player. And Benatia. Benatia arrived two months ago. And I mean... He came in in a defense like Barzagli, Bonucci, and Chiellini. They are almost brothers. Probably they grow up together because if you see them play, it really seems that they started when they were kids. And also Benatia, it seems he's playing there since 10 years. Uh, this is unbelievable. Probably Allegri, as usual, made a really good work and... That's the point. Yeah, also Benatia, I think it, it will be a very good surprise for Juventus fans this season. Especially if you saw um, Benatia struggle at, at Bayern. Um, he obviously had a lot of fitness struggles, but just never seemed to be part of the club entirely, you know. And when he did come back, there was a few injuries. There was also a few red cards and things like that. And I don't think he'd get out of Munich as quick as poss- as quick as he, you know, as he'd wanted to. Um, but he's ended up in the, perhaps the right place, as he said. How about Inter? They got their uh, they got their first win under Ronald de Boer. Yes, eased some pressure on him. Yeah, a lot. Mm. Because yes, they won, but the question is how they won. <laughs> they won at the last minute with a um, curious Icardi goal. Uh, of course, um, they say that he touched the ball with the hand at the last minute, and probably the referee has not the feeling to not give them the goal, but. It would be also a not uh, voluntary touch. Anyway, yes, they won. Uh, and they had good some good news like João Mario. That he played a very good, uh, very good game. Perisic is always uh, a certain. But uh, the the real question is Roma, Inter, are them the anti Juve at the moment? Because no, not now. The only team is uh, maybe trying to follow the Juventus steps uh, is Napoli. Mm-hmm. They, okay, they missed Higuain, but they made a, a really good uh, window market window. Mm-hmm. And I think at the moment they could try to fight against Juventus uh, for the Scudetto. Only them, for real at the moment. Inter, yeah, has some, uh, they have some problems. Mm, the Burr, I think also him have some problems with the team. Uh, in the end, is a, uh, a coach who there from the society and not um, there's not behind uh, um, thinking. There's not behind the project, uh, a sport, pro- a sportive project. So yeah, at the moment, I think they they have some problems they have to solve. But, I mean, they spend a lot of money. They, they signed uh, a lot of good players. And, 
Torino haven't quite solved their goalkeeping problem, though. Yeah, we're, we're John Hart, Johnny, John Hart, uh, yeah. our beloved Johnny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it has been not uh, the best starting for uh, for Joe Hart. Okay, probably was not so happy before the the game to see his name completely wrong on the official Torino lineup. So we have to say that John is his middle name. Ah, yeah, yeah. Is ah, Joe John Hart? He's Joe John Hart. Oh, yeah. JJ. What's up? What's up in there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult birth. Not a, not a huge not a huge amount of imagination from the parents there. <laughs> Maybe a big fight between the parents. Yeah. <laughs> but not only that. Because he also missed a very important ball on the first Atalanta goal, and in the end, Torino lost to one. And yeah, someone also is. Some Torino fans are complaining about that huge mistake, and also the Italian newspapers made fun of him, telling that he's very bravo. Because bravo in Italian it means good, <laughs> but also okay. Everybody knows what they meant. <laughs> and okay, but there is there is. Finally, there is some good news for an ex-teammate of his, Mario Balotelli. Oh, yeah. It won't be long now before he's back in the Italian squad. Uh, I don't know that, but they are very, uh, there are very, very good news from Provence because Balotelli scored two goals, one penalty, as usual, because it's his speciality, mm-hmm. but also a good header. But the most important thing it's, they're not the goals, but what he did after the second goals. Um, I don't know if if you see what's up, what's happened, but he ran to the ball to catch the ball because at the moment the, the header was the equalizer goal. And that's the proof that he wants to win. He wants to come back to Italy. He, I mean, at least in the Italian in the, in the national team. But I think that it's really it has been really a good uh, a good move by Balotelli that one i i really like that In 2010, the Netherlands made the World Cup final, but within four years of that, they finished bottom of their group at Euro 2012, failed to make it to France in the summer, and more recently, two assistant managers quit the national team in a two-week period. Joining us to talk about that is Mikhail Youngsma from Benefoot.net. Mikhail, in a recent interview with The Guardian, Ruud Hullet described Dutch football as a mess. It seems he has a point, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's actually quite refreshing to hear someone with a bit more gravitas uh, coming out, coming out with stuff like that, rather than uh, well, the more progressive young uh, football bloggers and all that kind of stuff, because it has been an issue for quite a while. I mean, the, the Dutch have the reputation of being quite progressive in general as a people. Well, um, in terms of politics, we kind of have lost that edge already. But in terms of football, we definitely have as well, uh, because yeah, I mean, there's been such an arrogance and uh, justified for a long time as well. In, in, in Dutch football culture, but over the last 10, 15 years, we've, we've just been surpassed by so many nations. And, um, well, Germany is a good example of, um, of a country that actually went, went over, saw what we did right, uh, improved what we did wrong, and, and then built a whole new philosophy on that. And, 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 well, the Dutch were just looking, standing around, being proud of what they, they had achieved. And, um, it's really truly astonishing when you, when you look at conservative and, uh, to an extent, or kind of dumb as well, uh, Dutch football culture is at the moment. So where has it all gone wrong, then? Is it just rooted in that conservatism? Yeah, I, I think that's the main issue. I mean, we have an idea of what what uh, beautiful football should be. It's a four-two-three with 
uh, wide wingers, um, so not, not inverted. I mean, inverted wingers, it happens these days, but it used to be almost like uh, a currency work rather than uh, just we'll play play with play with a, a footballing midfield. Uh, we'll basically shy away from balance because we can all chip in in different positions, right? But um, yeah, it's, it's really been about possession-based football. Uh, it's it's really been incre- incredibly stale because that's been the main focus. It's as if those numbers will get you to win the games rather than shots and goals. Um, so that's been a big problem, and um, there there's an element of uh, feeling sorry for for ourselves that kind of uh, holds the Eredivisie back as well because uh, the main the main argument that's used is well we can't compete with the bigger leagues in terms of finances, which is absolutely true. Uh, but uh, when you look at how many people are registered here as uh, footballers and amateur um, clubs and all that kind of stuff, it's still uh, one of the highest numbers in Europe. And apart from that, uh, I mean, you see other other nations with smaller budgets uh, progress um, to an extent. Uh, Portugal should be a good example of that, uh, who, who have both their uh, league teams quite in order, at least the top ones. And, uh, well, the national team did quite well as well this summer, I, I heard. Um, uh, but even teams like uh, or countries like the Czech Republic and Belgium, these are all nations with with less financial means and with uh, less citizens as well. But for some reason, we feel that we can just blame it on uh, well, <laughs> blame it on England basically uh, because they have so much money and we're we're so sorry for ourselves. What about the actual players themselves? I mean, there's still been a lot of talent coming through the Eredivisie, and maybe it moves on a bit quicker than it did, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the past. But I mean, I look at a guy like Adam Ma, who I saw a few seasons back, and you know, this was a guy who was meant to probably anchor that midfield for the Dutch team for years to come. And I think now playing in, in Turkey, sort of fallen off the map of the international um, sort of, I guess, situation at the moment. Is there something in the? In, you spoke about the arrogance a bit before of the perhaps. The the, the decisions off the pitch. Is there a degree of arrogance in the players as well in how they're sort of developed? Um, well, I, I think that has completely fallen away these days and, and it, it kind of used to be a good thing and it's probably in this Dutch national team probably best exemplified in a player like Wesley Schneider who still has that, uh, well, he's still basically a general when he's on the pitch and you still feel in, in his complete air he still thinks he's one of the best players in the world. Um, and yeah, you do see a bit of more uncertainty with younger players, but that's, yeah, I mean, the generation before this one was so incredibly successful. Um, so that kind of holds them back. But in general, it's not only just that, it's it's um, it's the nurturing of young players that's not uh, as good as it was. We still see lots of good talent coming through uh, aged uh, 18, 19. Uh, Adam Maher was a good example. Uh, he's had some difficulties just stepping up to the level of, of pace. And uh, yeah, as you said, he's now alone at Osman Lispor, where well, I really hope he can pick up his career uh, because I absolutely adored him when he was 19. It's fantastic. What about the national team and uh, Danny Blind? I know he was forced to defend his capabilities and deny he would uh, resign after that defeat to Greece. But how long would you expect him to, to be in charge? And if he, if he were to go, is there is there any ideal candidate to, there to replace him? Well, the, the the problem is that the Dutch state director has resigned and he will be replaced uh, by someone else. So there's co- quite a bit of turmoil in terms of assist- assistance as well. Uh, with the Katsvakar leaving for Fenerbahce and Marco van Basten leaving for the FIFA. Um, and as uh, with Gilles told, he was approached but uh, turned it down because he was 
they tried to get him on the false pretenses. But yeah, the problem is Danny Blind has said ahead of the Sweden game, well, even if we lose, I won't, I won't quit. So he, he seems very reluctant to resign. Um, I think people are really frustrated with that, but to an extent, they kind of accept that uh, that well, even if he would resign, there would not be a straightforward option available at the moment. Uh, I mean, for the last three years, the one man that's that's been seen as the uh, successor that, that should have been uh, as Ronald Koeman, and I mean, there's no chance of him just walking away from the Everton job at this this moment. So. Um, yeah, that kind of makes it difficult. Frank de Boer could have been another one, but he's uh, he just signed for Inter, and um, well, I mean, to be fair, it's Inter, so he could be out of a job in a couple of months. But uh, yeah, it, it it does make things quite difficult. And the, and the problem is, is he a good manager? Yeah, probably he, he probably isn't a good manager. Um, against Sweden, the Dutch were really dominant, and the one thing people tend to forget, and even in this country, is that. It's a very young squad, but the Eredivisie is a very young league, so you kind of can see that that is where you ha- where you have your strength. The squad itself is still really, really just perfectly fine. I mean, it's not not per se a Spain or or a Germany or, or or whatever, but when you look at that team, you still have a player like Kevin Strootman in there. Jasper Stilson just signed for Barcelona. Uh, Iron Robin, if he's spent, is, is a fantastic addition to the team. Um, so, Fergie van Dijk has impressed a lot of people in the Premier League, and the list just goes on. And when you look at the game against Sweden, you definitely face a, a, just a vastly inferior opponent. But because the the uh, because it's been so incredibly uh, turbulent over the last few years, uh, the setup constantly changes. There are no um, no real routines in the team in terms of uh, people being comfortable. That was Michaela Youngsma from Benefoot.net. Fabian, you look like you've got something you'd like to say about Dutch football. Yeah, I mean, I think it might be much ado about nothing, to be honest, because, um, you know, you have these lulls in generations where they're not as talented as the last, especially when you have such a supremely talented generation before. Um, And... you know, like Mikhail said, it's it's hard to keep up with these other teams that now have world-class players playing at world-class clubs, and therefore their national teams are kind of um, playing a lot better or exceeding expectations. And it's, you know, it's hard to keep up. So I, I don't think you can seriously expect your national team to be at the top all the time, because there is no national team that is at the top. That might be so, but I think also the slip of the, the actual Netherlands team has probably disappointed a lot. You know, as as uh, Ian read out before, you know, um, finishing bottom in groups, that sort of stuff. It's not just a coming back to the rest of the pack. It's in in some cases slipping under them. But look at France, France 2010, embarrassment, and now finals of the Euros at home. Sure, sure, and yeah, but I think that turnaround was quick, and I think this Dutch thing's been. Slipping for a while now, and it's it's showing no signs of, of recuperating. Okay, that's all from us today. My thanks to Paddy, Nico, Fab, Daniele, Mikhail, and our producer Damien. If you've anything you'd like to say about this week or would like to get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at One Football. Thanks for listening. Bye.